I'll be reading from Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's what Adonai says. The people escaping the sword found favor in the desert. I have brought Israel to its rest. From a distance, Adonai appeared to me saying, I love you with an everlasting love. This is why in my grace, I draw you to me. Once again, I will build you. You will be rebuilt, virgin of, virgin of Israel. I feel like I have asthma this morning. Um, once again, equipped with your tambourines, you will go out and dance with the merrymakers. Once again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Shamran, and those doing the planting will have the use of its fruit. For a day will come when the watchmen on Mount Ephraim will call, Come, let us go up to Sion, to Adonai, our God. For here's what Adonai says, Sing with joy for Yaakov. Shout for the chief of the nations. Proclaim your praise and say, Adonai, you have saved your people, the remnant of Israel. Look, I am bringing them from the land in the north, gathering them from the far ends of the earth. Among them are the blind and the lame, women with children, women in labor, all together a vast throng, returning here. They will come weeping and praying as I bring them back. I will lead them by streams of water, on smooth paths that they won't stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Nations, hear the word of Adonai. Proclaim it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel is gathering him, guarding him like a shepherd his flock. For Adonai has ransomed Yaakov, redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They will come and sing on the heights of Sion, streaming to the goodness of Adonai, to the grain, the wine, the olive oil, and the young of the flock and the herd. They themselves will be like a well-watered garden, never to languish again. Then the virgin will dance for joy, young men and old men together, for I, for I will turn their mourning into joy. Comfort and gladden them after their sorrow. I will give the Kohanim their fill of rich food, and my people will be satisfied with my bounty, says Adonai. This is what Adonai says. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamenting and bitter weeping. It is Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no longer alive. This is what Adonai says. Stop your weeping and dry your eyes. For your work will be rewarded, says Adonai. They will return from the enemy's land. So there is hope for your future, says Adonai. Your children will return to their own territory. Thank you, Judy. Uh, we are presenting this message on YouTube. Um, primarily for a variety of reasons, one of which is a uh, strong sense of conviction that what's in this message we believe to be the word of God that needs to be put out. It's not about us. It's about what God has to say. So I want to uh, um, encourage you to go on YouTube and check it out, invite your friends. Also, a uh, couple of of other things. Um, I mentioned earlier the church in Tübingen, the March of Life, and I have a number of handouts uh, written by the pastor Jobs Bittner uh, about what took place 
in Germany to lead uh, or to bring about the the Holocaust, and it's very very uh, eye opening. Also, Wednesday night, I wanted to mention that we're beginning a, a series of Bible studies on how to share the faith with uh, with people. And I will begin this Wednesday, but we'll have a number of other people sharing, and we'd like to encourage you to plan to be uh, to be there. I want to begin with a word of prayer as we um, begin this message. Lord God, we thank you for the amazing power that your word has, and we thank you, Lord, for all the different ways that you speak to us. In fact, we are cognizant of the fact that you have been speaking to us all morning through the service, through the worship, through the Torah service. And we pray, Lord God, for a continuation of that. Ask, Lord God, that you give us ears that are receptive to hear what it is that you're saying through your word. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. I wanted to, again, express my gratitude for the congregation, for the support that I've experienced over the last several weeks. I think you all know uh, the impact of the uh, conference in Dallas and the interviews that we went through, uh, the descendants of survivors and also descendants of German perpetrators like we saw um, earlier in the YouTube clip, and also what what this day and this week means, and uh, I sure appreciate it. Uh, it's a blessing to know that one's congregation understands and uh, that the rabbi himself also needs encouragement, so thank you for that. Um, the passage that uh, Judy read earlier spoke about a number of things, uh, including Rachel weeping over her children. And this touches me very, very deeply. Um, some of you may know our family history that's been written in, in a book form, uh, my father's story called Out of the Fury. What many people don't know is that my mother also had a story of her own. She came from a Zionist family, and her father uh, was a businessman. He was a bookkeeper, and uh, he had business dealing with ethnic Germans, and one of those uh, came to Germany, saw what was going on, came back and said to, to my grandfather, Mr. Leiner, um, bad things are happening to Jewish people in Germany. You need to take your family and leave Poland and come to Palestine, which was the name given to Israel. And so my grandfather did that, and my, my mother's immediate family was spared. However, uh, a large majority of my mother's family didn't leave and didn't survive. And um, my sister, who is older than I am, remembers uh, my mother weeping for weeks on end for members of her family who perished in the Holocaust. Um, and in the Israel that I grew up in, 
the Shoah, the Holocaust, was very much of a vivid reality because we were taught about it uh, through books and songs, and we went to the um, Yad Vashem, the, the Holocaust Museum, and um, we were deeply impacted. And as you can imagine, I have been so to this day. However, I stand before you to to say, to proclaim the fact that we not only mourn, but we also anticipate the redemption that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all nations provides. And that is really the essence of this chapter. This chapter is really about redemption. Uh, and we find this in the midst of a book by a prophet who was called a weeping prophet because he wept a lot. God gave him a job he didn't want, and that is to proclaim to Israel, you're in sin, God's judgment is coming. If you don't turn, uh, you will experience a, a great deal of suffering, which was beginning to happen in Jeremiah by Jeremiah's time here. Uh, the Babylonians with the Assyrians, first of all, came uh, and took the northern kingdom into Assyria. And then the Babylonians came, and there were two successive waves of deportations of people from Judah, the southern kingdom, into Babylon. And the Babylonians were like a pack of hungry wolves circling for the kill, because shortly afterwards, uh, after these words are written, uh, the Babylonians came, circled uh, Jerusalem, laid siege to it, destroyed the city and the, and the uh, temple. Uh, but amazingly enough, even though a partial exile had already taken place, God gives Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, a series of messages about reconciliation and redemption. And this, section's, this section in Jeremiah has been called the book of comfort, because it is. But I wanted, first of all, to begin with this very poignant uh, statement about Rachel, and I wanted to tease out some of what is being said here. Uh, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Rachel, as you may know, was a tragic story because although it started out, her story started out with uh, a love story with Jacob, um, she suffered. She was barren and uh, she died while giving birth to her second child, and we know him as Benjamin, Benjamin, which is the name that Jacob gave him, the son of the right hand, but her name before she passed was Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. And so you can see why she is a representative of the suffering of the nation of Israel. Um, again, the Babylonians are about to lay a siege, and, and uh, Ramah was a city that was five miles north of Jerusalem. It was one of the staging areas uh, for the gathering of the people of Jerusalem on the way to, uh, to Babylon, which was 
roughly 2,000-mile trip. And so you hear this prophetic voice. It's obviously not, not a, a, uh, a real voice, but it's prophetic voice, a lament, and the message by Eugene Peterson puts it as wild and bitter weeping. Um, she is weeping because her children have, take, have been taken away. Now, we really can't relate to that because when we go to a funeral, uh, we see people who have lost someone uh, crying, sobbing perhaps, but it's all very personal, it's very quiet, and uh, that's not the picture we have in mind here. The picture that is presented here is typical to an Eastern, uh, Near Eastern or Middle East picture where you have professional mourners who are hired to wail at the funeral in order to demonstrate the family's sorrow. And that's really what, what we're looking at here. It's not the quiet uh, shedding of tears, but loud weeping with a great deal of, of sorrow. And um, that's the picture that we see Rachel being involved in. Now, again, it's hard for our culture to get our arms around because our culture is so focused on the need for, uh, for feeling good. So we emphasize that um, through all kinds of media. But in reality, grieving and mourning is a normal part of life. And more often than not, we engage in denial because we really don't want to embrace it. We want to deny it and very quickly get on with what we consider to be life and feeling better, feeling good. Uh, and that's unfortunate because part of the way God wired us is that, yes, we want to experience the joy, but we also, along with that, have to experience the sorrow. You can't have one without the other. And so for us, we remember a couple of connections here um, in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew, uh, referring to Yeshua's early beginning, quotes this passage about Rachel and refers to the murder, murder excuse me, of two-year-old babies in Bethlehem by Her according to Herod's uh, command. And of course, today on Yom HaShoah Awareness, we also mourn the loss of the flower of the Jewish community of Europe and parts of the Middle East. And part of what we who have a connection with the Shoah, with the Holocaust, hear from time to time is some degree of impatience on the part of people who are not connected and their attitude is, get on with it. This was seven years ago. It's, all, it's already ancient history. And our response to that is simply to say that no, we cannot get on with it for a number of reasons. First of all, the Shoah represents the worst in the long line of horrors that have been heaped upon us who are Jewish for the last 2,000 years. And secondly, uh, the landscape, particularly in Europe and the Middle East, 
makes it clear that life for Jewish people is by no means safe. Um, leaders in, in the European Jewish community have stated that anti-Semitism is at its worst level since World War II. And we've been hearing all kinds of stories to confirm that. So weeping, mourning is appropriate for us as normal part of life and certainly as uh, part of how we as a community, a mishpacha, how we appreciate what has taken place with the nation of Israel at the same time, rem reminding ourselves that yes, there is future, yes, there is hope. And in verse 16, the prophet, God speaking through the prophets, uh, states to Rachel, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work has been rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. Now, some of this is clear, some of it is not. We may find it somewhat odd that God is saying to Rachel, to stop weeping since weeping and mourning is, is appropriate and normal. What we need to understand is that God isn't saying to Rachel, stop, knock it off, you're doing something, something inappropriate. In fact, what he's saying is gentle and in an encouraging tone, saying, stop, there's no need for you to continue weeping. So the context, the background he here is that of comfort and encouragement, not severe chastisement. What we see in the prophets, folks, over and over and over again is after the severe messages of warning that is given by God through the prophets, warning the people to repent, predicting severe punishment to come upon them, when that actually happens, or as it begins to happen, you never see God gloating. You never see God saying, aha, you're getting what you deserve, what's been coming to you. Rather, you see the heart of God breaking through these prophecies, and he expresses the fact that even with the heartache of the judgment, in this case the exile, that redemption is available. As Joanne Tischler was mentioning earlier, redemption, folks, is always part of God's heart, always, God, always part of God's plan. And we see that reflected in in the Tanakh, in, in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, over and over again, God's response to the suffering of his people is compassion. We also see that in the New Covenant, we, as we saw earlier in the responsive reading, that Yeshua approached Jerusalem, and as he saw Jerusalem, he wept. Why? Because he knew that judgment was coming on that generation. On that generation. And so because God presents himself as someone who is compassionate and merciful, we have 
all the reasons in the world to approach him in confidence. Since we have been told this is how he approached me. There are a couple of statements I wanted to read from the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2. For this reason he, Messiah, had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Then verse uh, verse 18 of chapter 2. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Then in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So again, God sees that we mourn, that we weep, that we struggle. He doesn't berate us. He doesn't come with a, with a two-by-four. He comforts us, particularly when we demonstrate that we are willing and committed to following his will and his commandments. He comes and he comforts us. And here in verse 16 of, of Jeremiah, Rachel is told, your work has been rewarded. And that's somewhat puzzling because we wonder what is meant by your work has been rewarded or you have received payment uh, for your work. Well, part of reality is that mourning is hard work. Think about it. It requires a great deal of emotional and even physical output of energy. A person who mourns is exhausted. It takes everything out of you. And particularly when we mourn, not for ourselves, but for others, there is an element of intercession. In other words, we are doing that in reference to other people and praying for restoration for them. This is an insight that I I saw in the JPS study Bible, that Rachel was not only weeping, but she was interceding for the return of her children from the exile. And, And we see that throughout Scripture, that mourning is associated with a request with a passionate request for God to bring about restoration. And so for us at Yeshua Tzion, on Yom HaShoah, yes, we mourn, but we pray for the nation of Israel for fuller restoration. Then a second reason is given why Rachel should, should stop weeping. Her children, which have gone to Babylon, are going to be coming back from exile. It's obviously a prophetic statement, It's not based on current human reality. Um, The facts on the ground were totally different. And yet, God is predicting that Rachel's children will in fact come back. And this is something that happened not only once, but it's happened on a couple of occasions. The people of Israel were restored from exile in Babylon and also 
there's been a restoration uh, from the large, the massive exile brought on by by the Romans destroying uh, Jerusalem and, and deporting a huge number of, of Jewish people. You may know that the modern return to Israel began in the 1880s and that it, it picked up speed after World War II. Um, and there has been large movements of Jewish people returning from the Soviet Union and from Ethiopia. However, part of reality is that as I read the Word of God, there will be a further return because at this point, the majority of the nation of Israel is outside the land of Israel. Roughly about 5 million or, or so Jewish people are uh, six million, excuse me, Jewish people are in Israel, but eight million are outside the land. So there's a bigger picture. In verse 17, we're told there's hope for your future. And this is something that the people of Israel and us who suffer in one form or another struggle with. Because we assume that when we go through suffering, when we go through trials, that we have done something to bring about God's judgment to cause God to reject us. And that is not the case most of the time, particularly with the people of Israel. And, and for us who go through different types of suffering, it is not uh, associated with God's judgment, God's wrath, for those of us who are committed to hearing his voice, and following in his, in his path. Again, it's very natural to assume God's rejection and lose hope. But the Word of God tells Israel, the Word of God tells us to never lose hope. And the facts on the ground say what they say, however... We have to be able to have God's eyes, God's perspective, and be able to look beyond the facts on the ground and see things somewhat prophetically. In other words, acknowledge reality on the ground. We have to, otherwise they will come take us away. But we have to be able to look beyond that and see the fact that God is engaged in a process of restoration. And here in this particular case for the nation of Israel, and um, every, every so often I hear fellow believers um, talking about how that God is, for all purposes, finished with the nation of Israel or that the nation of Israel is way off on, on the back burner. And you can imagine what it does to me. Um, however... I recognize that God is in control regardless of what people do say or don't say. Here in this chapter, and I would encourage you to read throughout because it is a marvelous expression of God's heart for restoration for Israel and for people in general. We see that what drives God's powerful acts is a passionate emotion for the people of Israel. Let me read to you a couple of statements 
kind of skipping around here. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. He is speaking to Israel here. And I have absolutely no reason to look at this and say uh, his love for Israel stopped um, at the year 30 or at the year 35. Everlasting as I see it is indefinite period of time that has, has no beginning, no end. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty Is not Ephraim, the rebellious Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. And the Hebrew here is so vivid, so graphic. It literally talks, speaks about uh, a father or a mother looking at, at their sleeping child and, and knowing that during the day your hands... Um, uh, resisted the choking impulse because they were so difficult and obnoxious and yet at night you look at them and your heart is moved with compassion and, and, and you have this warm, fuzzy feeling. And that's the language that God has is presenting here when he's speaking about the major tribe of the northern kingdom, Ephraim, who was very rebellious, very idolatrous and as Joanne mentioned earlier, was involved in spiritual prostitution. Yet this is what God is saying, folks. That's the kind of God that we have. So based on his feelings, he is going to kick into action a large-scale, full-orbed plan for restoration. It's obviously going to be spiritual. Later on in this chapter, God predicts the time that he will make a new covenant. And the new covenant, folks, let's be real clear. The new covenant was set for the purpose of establishing a stronger relationship with the nation of Israel. And yes, God brought the nations into it. They have been grafted into, into the promises. However, God is saying, this is part of my plan for the nation of Israel. Spiritual restoration, but also material, physical restoration. What we see is that there's a physical regathering of the people back into the land where they prosper materially. In other words, God brings them into the land, brings about a spiritual revival and a material revival couple of verses here in Jeremiah 31 there will be a day when the watchmen verse 6 there will be a day when the watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim come let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God in other words there will be a time when Zion i.e. Jerusalem not Salt Lake City but Jerusalem will be restored verse 12 they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion they will rejoice in the bounty. Bounty is physical and material prosperity of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, the oil, the young of the flocks and the herds, they will be like well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. And this is part of the package 
that God has for Israel. And it's a mystery. It is a mystery, folks, that the God of the universe, the one who is all-powerful and created the entire world and the galaxies and so on, has a special affinity for this little piece of real estate called Israel. Tiny, tiny little piece of real estate that has experienced conquerors from all corners. God is very committed to this little piece of real estate. He is personally and intimately identified with this place called Israel. And so when I hear folks speak about loving individual Jewish people, but hating Zion, uh, hating the state of Israel, hating the corporate Jewish people, I struggle with that for a couple of very major reasons. One, I don't see that scripturally. I see over and over and over and over again that God makes statements to the effect that he is identified with Jerusalem, that this is the place that he specifically chose to put his name. Now, reality is, and I've lived in this state for over 40 years, uh, Jerusalem is not the most beautiful place in the world. There's really not tons of things about Jerusalem that set it apart, with one exception. This is what God has chosen to park his name. He didn't ask my opinion or anybody else's opinion. That's what he decided. And so because of that, he displays in very graphic, very clear terms that he will bring about restoration. And next Shabbat, we'll talk some more about this because we'll be celebrating Yom Atzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. And our celebration of Yom Atzma'ut is first and foremost a statement of appreciation and gratitude to the God of Israel for his faithfulness. We'll talk some about the history and what scripture has to say, but it's first and foremost about God. So, again, the folks that make that distinction between loving individual Jewish people and hating Israel corporately and not seeing that Israel has a legitimate claim to the land, they have a bone to pick with God Almighty. At the same time, let me hasten to point out very clearly that the Palestinians are co-dwellers in the land of Israel. That's reality. They have to be uh, provided for, and, and, and that's part of God's concern. However, the title deed was never given to them. It was given to Israel. So scripturally, I, I have difficulty with lovers of Jewish people and haters of Israel. Also, historically, as a son of Holocaust survivor, I'm, my mind has been steeped in, in the history of our people, and I just want to give you a couple of examples. Bermuda Conference, um, in April of, of uh, 1943, uh, American-British 
delegations met in Bermuda to discuss the fate of Jewish refugees. And you know how it is when politicians and statespeople gather together, they talk, they palaver, and not, not always coming up with something significant. Well, in this case, uh, the delegates ended the conference by rejecting recommendations that the Jewish refugees be helped uh, by saying that the nations, United States and, and, and Britain, were not capable of helping them because that would divert them from the pursuit of success in the war. So immigration quotas in the United States were not raised, and the British prohibition on Jews coming to the land of Israel was not lifted. Um, and if you know the history, you, you realize that the British Navy invested a great deal of manpower to see to it that Jews didn't come into the land. So I don't get the connection. If you don't have manpower to fight the war, then why do you need to do that? Uh, and by the way, uh, there were troop, U.S. troop ships that were sometimes coming empty from Europe and could have taken refugees. Another story um, had to do with a movie called The Voyage of the Damned, 1976. It was based on a true story. In 1939, the voyage of the St. Louis departed Hamburg, northern Germany, um, carrying close to 1,000 Jewish people, ostensibly heading towards Cuba. What the passengers didn't realize is that the Nazis gave permission for the ship to sail as a demonstration of the fact that nobody wanted to take the Jewish refugees. And, and so the ship sailed, it came to Cuba, the, the, it was turned around, it came to the United States, it was turned around, it went from country to country, it was always turned around, ended up coming back to Germany and most of the Jewish people then perished in the Holocaust. And their point was, see, nobody, want these, nobody wants these Jews. So when a person speaks about loving an individual and it, it, in the same breath proclaiming that they hate the ethnic identity of that individual, I have a hard time embracing that. because I, I don't see that as the heart of God. So on Yom HaShoah, on this day and this week, yes, we mourn. Mourning happens, folks. Uh, not just because of Yom HaShoah, mourning happens in our life for one reason or another. However, we cannot mourn in despair, as Paul tells us in First Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, all of our life is under God's control. And even our times of mourning cannot be viewed as a total waste because God is engaged with us and he is engaged with us during those times of mourning. And if we have that perspective, then we will not lose hope 
And we will understand the fact that God is committed to restoration and redemption in our life, in us and then through us. It's true in Israel's case. It's true in each one of us as individuals. And furthermore, what God does with us, he wants it to overflow and to impact other peoples, just as he does with Israel. He wants to restore Israel and through the nation of Israel, bring about the fuller plan of redemption for this world. That to me is the fuller picture of the message here in Yom, on Yom HaShoah in Jeremiah 31. Let's pause and pray. Father God, we thank you that you understand the depths of human emotion, that you understand, Lord God, what takes place in us as we mourn. Thank you, Lord God, that you don't shy away from us. In fact, thank you, Lord God, that you present yourself even more vividly during those times in our life. Thank you, Lord God, for showing us that our mourning is not wasted. And thank you, Lord God, for restoring hope when we lose hope. Thank you, Lord God, that you have awesome plans for the nation of Israel. We affirm that on this day, Yom HaShoah. Thank you, Lord God, for your awesome plans for all of mankind including the Palestinians and the Arabs in all the countries that are suffering greatly at this point. Lord God, we thank you for who you are, for your power at work in this world. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.